Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a wonderful guest on with us today. We have a playwright extraordinaire, Deborah 3D. Welcome, Deborah. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, we are so excited. I, I had the chance to talk to Deborah on Mormon Media Reviews slash Mormon Book Reviews with Steve Pinecker. And we just thought we have got to have her on Mormonish because we would love to have our Mormonish audience get to know her and also some of the other amazing projects that she works on. So to start out, I'm just going to read her brief bio here and then we will dive right in. Deborah 3D recently retired after 30 years as a professor of law at the University of Utah. She has been involved in theater since high school and worked for a few years in theater full time before going to law school. For the last 20 years, Deborah's theater life has been focused on playwriting. And I'll give you a clue. That's kind of why we're here today. <laughs> Deborah was born in Chicago and grew up in the Northwest suburbs. She majored in theater arts at Beloit College in Wisconsin, where she focused on acting and directing. After college, she was a teaching assistant in the theater department at Beloit for a year and then spent a year as a full-time company member at the New American Theater in Rockford, Illinois. After becoming a law professor, she again became involved in professional and semi-professional theater in Salt Lake City. She enjoyed some success there as an actress, including roles at Salt Lake Acting Company, and she directed a couple of shows, but eventually discovered that she was more drawn to writing plays. <laughs> we can vouch for that. Now, I will tell you guys a little bit about how we encountered Deborah at first. We just saw a post that said, a new play, Mountain Meadows. And of course, if you watch Mormonish, you know that we discuss Mountain Meadows. We talk about Mountain Sometimes I cry about Mountain Meadows. <laughs> we have a lot to do with Mountain Meadows. We're very interested in that story and we talk about it. So we were absolutely fascinated. And it was a play that was being put on um, in Salt Lake a couple months ago. And we were able to grab tickets. Um, a lot of people went from our book club, uh, even to the point where people tried to get tickets and they couldn't like it sold out very quickly because word got around at how amazing this play was. And as I usually do, I like to reach out to the people behind things like this. So I was able to connect with Deborah and talk to her a little bit on some other podcasts about um, the play, but there's an opportunity now, a virtual opportunity, opportunity for all of us to experience this incredible play Mountain Meadows. So we're going to tell you more about that later. But for now, we're going to get to know Deborah a little bit better. So welcome, Deborah, to Mormonish. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, audience out there. <laughs> Hello, audience. That's right. Hello, everyone. You, you can tell we're in sort of a fun mood tonight, which is funny because we're talking about the mountain meadows. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, why don't you tell us, Deborah, just a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and then how you found yourself in Utah. It's, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, went to college in Wisconsin, uh, came back to Illinois for law school, uh, became a lawyer and practiced um, in Chicago for six years. Um, became, I, and I was, this is funny, I became a trial lawyer because when I was in law school and people found out I had a theater background, they said, well, of course, you're going to be a trial lawyer, right? And what do I know? I say, sure. I hated it. 
Hated, Did they somehow hated, think hated. the acting would come forward? Like you can't handle the truth and you're going to be. That's doing right. it. <laughs> yeah. right. I object. <laughs> yeah. The trouble is that trial lawyers truly are hired guns. You hire them to fight your fights. I'm very confrontation adverse. So wow. it, it was agony um, to do that. Um, and I hated it. Um, so after six years, I left that and transitioned to law teaching, which actually is a better fit with my acting background because you have to, at some level, entertain your class if you're going to get them involved and pay attention and invested. Um, so it, it, it actually was a much better fit for me, and which is why I did that for some 30 years uh, before retiring. But um, I fell in love with theater when I was 16. I majored in that in, in college. I thought for a while that maybe that's what I would do with my life, but um, the job insecurity really got to me. And I think I had um, kind of a crisis of faith in that um, I had a vision of myself being, you know, this is when I'm 20 and I have a vision of myself being 40 you know, waiting tables and waiting for my big break. And I couldn't say that was an irrational fear. It wasn't. It was certainly a possibility. Um, and that's what prompted me to switch gears um, to law. My dad was a lawyer and I was a lot like my dad. He liked being a lawyer. I thought, I'll like being a lawyer. He was not a trial attorney. <laughs> Isn't it funny how the, all the glamour seems to go to the trial attorney, right? Yeah. They're the main characters and the dramas, but there's so many other ways to practice law behind the scenes, you know, right. many, many more ways than being right there as a trial lawyer. Oh, that's Absolutely. wonderful. And so you found yourself in Utah and you do not have a Mormon LDS background. And here you are in Utah. What was that like? <laughs> um, it was funny at, at some level, very quickly, um, at, at sort of a cultural level, I felt comfortable because I came from a very strong Catholic background. So I was used to people whose involvement in church was somewhat all-consuming. And I was used to very large families. <laughs> so, <laughs> at those two parts of living That's in pretty the much Utah, it. <laughs> yeah, you know, felt comfortable. I mean... By that point in my life, I had left the church, so um, and and um, I I don't think of myself as um, a person who's interested in organized religion. So um, I never really got. It was more more my interest in, in Mormonism more an anthropological than it ever was religious. <laughs> Interesting. So you were studying us when you got here. You said, this is fascinating, <laughs> as we should be studied. Don't you think, Landon? <laughs> yeah. So, so you get to Utah and uh, you all of a sudden start studying the history of Utah and its people, or is is that what happened? And how did you get drawn into to that? Um. Well, Certainly my philosophy as a playwright has always been that you should bloom where you find yourself planted. And I found 
myself in Utah. And by the way, I got a job offer to come out here and teach. And that's how I got from Illinois um, out to here. Um, And I very rapidly became interested in all of Utah's interesting stories, Uh, not just the Mormon related ones, but my very first play was about Everett Roos, the young man who went missing in 1934 in the Escalante Canyons. And this day, no one knows what happened to him. Um, I did a lot of backpacking when I first came to Utah and I learned first learned about him as one should sitting around a campfire, <laughs> hearing stories of the wilderness. And um, he's one of the stories of the wilderness um, of Utah. Um, and then, you know, uh, Rebecca mentioned that I've also written a play um, inspired by the FLDS, especially both the Short Creek Raid back in the 1950s and the Texas Raid uh, much more recently. Um, and so it's, it's, it's happenstance in a way that I find myself here, but when I found myself here and looked around, these were the stories that I found interesting. I've also written a play about the execution of Joe Hill, another very Utah story. (laughs) Have these plays ever been produced or are they just uh, waiting for a reader's theater or something? The the one inspired by the FLDS is the only one that hasn't found a home yet. It's still, um, it hasn't, it's had a reader's theater production, but it has never had a, a full production. The others, yes, have all had full productions. Oh, that's wonderful. And just to kind of meld together sort of the sociological, cultural, environmental, everything that you saw together as someone coming from the outside. I mean, I think that's what makes, I mean, we've only seen the, we've seen the one Mountain Meadows. I think that's what it makes so provocative about, about your work. You know, it just has so many elements in it that, that are just so intriguing and leave you walking out thinking and you've learned something, but you also want to know more and maybe do your own study. So to me, that's the mark of a really good production that (laughs) there's a lot to it. So, and so you tell us how you, how Mountain Meadows was even a topic that you came, did you know anything about Mountain Meadows when you came to Utah or most people don't? That's why I love to ask that question. When did you first hear? How did you hear? Yeah. I truly don't remember when I first heard about Mountain Meadows. Um, I know that, uh, and this was probably the first time I started getting into it in any depth. I was teaching a class on law and archaeology, <laughs> another one of my interests. Um, and uh, I had invited, I, it had been recommended to me that I invite uh, Shannon Novak as a guest. And she's, Um, a forensic anthropologist um, who was, and and this is um, in early 2000s, maybe 2001, maybe 2000, maybe 2002, I don't remember exactly. But she was in Utah doing a postdoc um, um, and she was the one who in 1999, when the church was redoing the monument uh, and before the rededication of the monument at the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre site, um, unintentionally, um, the grave was opened and human remains were found. 
And um, according to the law in Utah, the law of archaeology in Utah at the time, uh, when you find human remains, the first thing you have to do is contact law enforcement so they can decide if a crime has been committed. And of course, a crime was committed, but <laughs> law enforcement is no longer interested in it. Right. So at that point, the law was that if uh, law enforcement didn't take uh, control of the remains, they had to be turned over to the state archaeologist for study. Now, this was primarily to protect Native American remains, um, because those were the kinds of remains that were most likely to be found in a situation where no one knew whose remains they were, you know, sort of thing. Um, so the, the remains had to be turned over to the state archaeologist and studied before they could be reinterred. But of course, the church wanted to reinter them before the rededication on September 11, 2007, or uh, no, they, no, it wasn't that, that they were, the rededication was coming in 1999. Um, I misspoke there. And um, it, but it was going to be on September 11th and the bones had been unearthed early in August. So they ended up on Shannon Novak's desk and she had less than a month um, to study 2,000 bone fragments um, because that's the condition that the bones were in. Uh, there were, there were um, um, I forget exactly how many, but there were some relatively intact crania, but most of the bones were just small pieces of bone. Um, it was a very daunting task. And as a scientist, it meant that she couldn't do um, a proper scientific, scientific examination of the bones. There just wasn't enough time and there were too many bones. So she really had to scale back what sort of review and catalog she was gonna do. Um, and that's what she talked about when she came to my class. Um, and she talked about what she had learned from her admittedly truncated um, review of the bones. So that was kind of my first introduction to Mountain Meadows. Um, and then in 2007, um, I think through my friendship with uh, Shannon Novak, because we had stayed in touch, um, I was, when they were doing the 150 year celebration, not celebration isn't the right word, commemoration. <laughs> commemoration, um, yeah. The, the event down in Cedar City, um, I was invited to talk on a panel, um, as was Shannon, and we were on the same panel. So in preparation for that, I had done a lot more reading about uh, Mountain Meadows. Um, so that's, that's sort of what led me um, to Mountain Meadows. Then, and this is the funny part of the story, I retired, um, at the beginning of 2017, and I moved down to Dameron Valley, which is outside of St. George. And I had in my head that the Mountain Meadows Massacre site, which I had never visited, was somewhere by Cedar City, because that's where I had been involved <laughs> with it. And it is sort of close to Cedar City, but it's a lot closer to Dameron Valley. It is 10 miles away. <laughs> So one Sunday afternoon, we're out for a drive exploring the neighborhood and we come around a corner on the highway and now there's the sign that says Mount Meadows, one mile. 
<laughs> and I couldn't believe that I lived that close to the site. Um, and I took that as a sign from the universe that I, and I was actually looking for a project at that point. Uh, and I took that as a sign from the universe that this was supposed to be my project. <laughs> when you move to Mountain Meadows without real, realizing it, I think it definitely is a sign from the universe. That's absolutely amazing. The the play isn't isn't necessarily it's it covers Mountain Meadows, but it also involves Juanita Brooks quite a bit. How did you get to Juanita Brooks, and how did you decide to kind of yeah. meld the two stories together? Um, That's it's wonderful. It's, it's very much. Um, one of my commitments, if you will, as a playwright is to find ways to tell stories, and they don't necessarily need to be women's stories, but to tell them from a woman's perspective. Um, theater, like the rest of our culture, um, is really not gender balanced. Um, most roles are written for men. Most leading roles are written for men. Um, so I've made it part of my commitment as a playwright to redress that imbalance. And I try to have leading roles for women in all of my plays. So now with Mountain Meadows, <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge. Because <laughs> I'm looking at this and going, um, okay, where are the women? And right. there aren't a whole lot of women whose stories we know who are part of the actual Mountain Meadows event. Um, but the more I worked on it, who's the woman who is most affiliated, associated with Mountain Meadows? Juanita Brooks. So it, because of my commitment to finding a way to tell Mountain Meadows through the perspective of a woman, is how I came up with uh, Juanita Brooks as my central character, or at least one of my two central characters. And then, of course, the kind of have to play braids together two stories, one of which is historical, and it's Juanita Brooks' uh, struggle to research and tell and publish the story of Mount Meadows, one of which is fictional. There's always been a rumor that there was a child, a girl, who wasn't sent back to Arkansas, but who was a survivor of the massacre. And the fictional story is my uh, imaginative answer to the question of how could that happen? How could that come about, assuming that were, were true? Um, so there are two women's stories, one of whom's fictional and Juanita's story are sort of melded together in the play. Yeah, I just love that the juxtaposition because it it went back and forth in time, you know. You yeah. and maybe maybe explain to our viewers exactly who Juanita Brooks is. I mean, you just touched on it, but maybe a little more detail for people. Maybe I mean we're just talking about her. We know, but maybe not everybody realizes who this very important and pivotal LDS woman. This is an active LDS woman with an interest in Mountain Meadows. So yeah, maybe tell us a little bit more about her so our viewers understand. Yeah. Juanita Brooks was born um, in Bunkerfield or Bunkerville, which is a suburb today of Mesquite. So she was actually uh, born in Nevada um, to 
She's uh, a grandchild of Dudley Levitt. Um, her, so her grandfather was a polygamist with five wives. Um, her father was not a polygamist, uh, but they, her family was staunch LDS. Um, and she grew up in a very LDS community way out there on the edge you know, of the Mojave Desert. Um, even though they lived in Nevada, um, the center of um, their community, if you will, was actually tethered in St. George because, um, you know, that's where the temple was. The, the, that's just, um, she uh, was married young. She was 20 when she got married. Um, her husband died a year later of cancer. Uh, they had, um, uh, she had a newborn baby yet when her, um, well, actually, yeah, she had a newborn baby. He was about uh, four or five months old when her husband died. Um, she really had to scramble um, for a while, um, moved back in with her parents for a while, uh, became a teacher, um, and saved enough money to go to BYU uh, to get, you know, she had gotten at Dixie College, which that's not what it was called then, um, just like it's not what it's called now, but <laughs> that's what everybody knows Good it point. is. <laughs> um, she'd gotten a, an associate teaching degree, but she wanted, you know, a, a full bachelor of arts degree. So she went to BYU, um, uh, the the stories that she tells of um, she went with a younger sister who would help take care of the baby while and and she said um, her class planning uh, was focused on what classes can I take um, to take care of the baby when my sister is in class and what classes can she take to take care of the baby while I'm in class so um, you know. It was a, a difficult scramble. Um, after she graduated, she went back to St. George. She got a, a teaching job at Dixie College. She worked her way up through the ranks there, became the Dean of Women Students there, um, got a sabbatical from them, uh, went to Columbia in New York City uh, and got her master's uh, in English, um, came back, um, she had become, um, from the time of her first marriage, she had become interested in collecting pioneer diaries. Uh, she was fascinated by stories of the frontier and stories of what the early Mormon settlers had gone through. Um, so that became more and more uh, important to her. Um, especially after her second marriage in um, 1932, 33, I think it was 33, um, she married Will Brooks, who was uh, at the time the sheriff of St. George. Um, she, of course, quit her teaching job when she got married, because that's what you did. Um, he had, um, he was a widower, and he had a uh, five boys from his first marriage, four of whom were still children, one of whom was an adult and then left home. Um, she had her son. They rapidly had another, I think, four kids, if I'm remembering correctly. So she had a house full. <laughs> um, 
But um, she started working for um, the WPA. She, they actually hired her to collect historical documents in the St. George area. And of course, that's a synony synonymous with pioneer diaries, <laughs> right? So she was actually getting paid by the federal government to collect these diaries. And she, would she hired women to transcribe them. In the course of doing all of this, it became clear to her that the story, the accepted story about Mountain Meadows, which was that it was a Paiute attack, was false because she was finding, um, you know, memories, memoirs and diaries and journals written by participants that was putting the lie to all of that. Um, she had started writing some historical essays. The very first one that she wrote was accepted by Harper's Magazine, National Magazine, and published. Um, so her interest in early Mormondom was sort of bleeding into this path as a historian. And the first sort of, well, she started working on diaries and publishing diaries. Um, she did it for Dudley Levitt. Um, she did one from Jacob Hamlin. Uh, and the, but one of her earliest big projects was doing Mountain Meadows. And it took her 15 years to write the book. Um, and she did it against incredible pushback. Um, not so much at the official level, because that was just mm, not going to talk about it. But, exactly. It didn't happen. You know, <laughs> at, at, I mean, she, would, she tried to see documents that the church had, and they said, nope, can't see them. Um, so she did it without any support from the church history office whatsoever. Um, but there was a lot of pushback uh, at, at a community level. Uh, some people stopped talking to her when they found out what she was doing. Um, even her sister um, sort of went on the record saying, I think this is a really bad idea. I don't think you should be doing this. Um, I think well, you're going to get in trouble. Started, you'd think she started a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as bad. Right. Just as bad, yes. <laughs> um, and and she didn't let any of that stop her. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, she's one of my favorite people. I, I wish I'd had the chance to meet her, um, and I never did, um, although I know people who met her. Who <laughs> met her. And her book was called, her book was called? Mountain Meadows Massacre. <laughs> Mountain Meadows Massacre, and it has been the quintessential book for quite a long time that told, you know, sort of the unvarnished story, like Deborah talked about, when I myself, I've talked about this a lot to my my viewers before that, you know, I discovered very early on in my faith transition that one of my ancestors was a shooter and a clubber, a, a senior high council member and a member of the militia. And he did murder. He was responsible for murder. And I found that out innocently working at the BYU library in the archives, you know, reclassification reclassifying old books and I discovered this information then I dug in and I found some records some arrest warrants and things like that and I took the information to my family and as you discussed pushback they just had no tools to comprehend it they would not 
understand it. They would not comprehend it. This is our founding ancestor in our family. Um, my maiden name is, you know, this this gentleman's last name. This is my grandfather's grandfather. They would, you know, they would not hear it. They would not. And so the pushback is real. I can't, and I dropped it at that point. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be Juanita and to say, I'm not going to drop it. You know, I have integrity. I'm a historian. Not only am I not going to drop it, I'm going to make this information available. And you convey that very well in the play. Don't you think, Landon, weren't you impressed with that whole part of it? The oh, juxtaposition yeah. of Juanita. You, you could feel her feistiness, uh, her mm -hmm, determination, mm -hmm. despite mm -hmm. everybody, you know, even her closest, uh, I think it was her sister in the play that was yeah. uh, the one that was pressuring yeah. her. Uh, but yeah, I, I uh, just reading about her life, uh, she faced a lot of pushback and uh, possible excommunication. Uh, mm -hmm. She assumed that that might happen, but she continued to, to push forward. And now you can't read a, a book about Mountain Meadows without them referring to her work. It's, it's always one of the footnotes. Yeah, it's yeah. foundational. Yeah. yeah. And it's uh, amazing. It is. It is. Um, yeah, and, and the fear of excommunication was real, mm -hmm. um, and it also was upsetting to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did not want to be excommunicated. Um, she thought of herself always as a stalwart member of the church, a daughter of the church. Um, but as she said in the introduction to Mountain Meadows, only the truth is good enough for the church I serve. So she didn't see she didn't see telling the truth about Mountain Meadows as being an attack on the church, unlike what many other people saw it as. Yeah, and that's so interesting. You hear a lot of people who have stepped away from Mormonism saying, I learned to be truthful. I learned to look for truth and tell the truth in this church. And so I'm going to do that, even if it shines the spotlight back onto the institution that taught me, I'm not going to compromise. And she was so vilified. Wouldn't you say, Landon, growing up, you'd hear, oh, Juanita in that book. I mean, at least in the circles that I was in, she was vilified for what she did. But she she identified well, completely as faithful and a champion of the truth. She, she wasn't just attacking the, the church. She was attacking the families that live in southern Utah because... Almost everyone in South yeah, Utah had had come from a you know a relative that was in, that was involved in the massacre. So uh, you're you're it's almost a personal attack. Uh, they're seeing it as that because they're uncovering some ugly family skeletons and bringing right. those out of the closet. So that that played into it too. She definitely had a uh, an uphill battle for sure. Yeah, although again, that's not how she saw it, and she would remind right. those people that her grandfather, Dudley Levitt, was at Mountain Meadows. Yeah. So, um, you know, she, she identified with both sides in that fight, um, you know, but again, um, felt that the, tr that the truth is always better. That, and she had seen the damage that that secret had done in particular instances. Um, the incident with Nephi Johnson uh, was really a pivotal moment in her development. This was before she had started becoming, in fact, this was, she knew nothing about Mount Meadows at this point other than, you know, what people said, which was, it was a Paiute attack. 
Right. And then um, as a young woman, about 20, it was shortly before she got married, um, she had befriended Nephi Johnson. He was the patriarch in Mesquite, which is where she was living at the time teaching school. And um, he had stopped by her classroom one day and said, I have some writing I want you to do for me. He said, my eyes have seen things that my tongue has never spoken of. And she was busy. She had, you know, it was the end of the school year. And um, she said, well, you know, can we put it off? Can we do it another time? And he said, sure. And one thing led to another and never got around to it. And then um, she, in that September, the following September, she got news that he was dying and that he was asking for her. So she went to his deathbed and he rallied enough to recognize her at one point, but then he kind of slipping into, into dementia and um, was never rational again while she was there. But at one point he sat up in bed and started yelling and screaming and he shouted blood, blood, blood three times. And, and then he kind of passed out for a while. And um, she took one of his family members aside and she said, what, what was that about? What was he talking about? Blood. And they said he was there. He was at Mountain Meadows. And that was the first inkling she had had that the story about Mountain Meadows involved LDS and not just Paiutes. Um, and she repeated that incident a number of times as an adult. So it's clear that that was um, uh, something that made a deep impression on her. And she talked about how this poor man who had for 62 years carried this secret about his involvement in Mount Meadows and how that was haunting him on his deathbed. That, that um, must have broken her heart to know that if she'd have gone a couple months yeah. earlier, the research that she spent, she would have had it all right there, you know. That breaks my heart, her. thinking yeah. of what we could have learned what from that. What we could that. have learned but, from him. But, you yeah. know, it set her on the path to do what she did. And and I agree, those kinds of um, personal secrets and then institutional secrets. I mean, I think when I took that information to my grandparents, they knew inside that there was something but their reaction is you just you shut it down and it's it's very detrimental to a person. So that's why this play, I think, is so cathartic. It's just I can't describe to our listeners and viewers just just how wonderfully it's woven together, because now you've heard a little bit about the Juanita part of the play. And then you you interwove actual events from the Mountain Meadows juxtaposed with, like you said, the toll that it takes today. There's three different eras that the play covers. Maybe talk a little bit about those other two eras and how those are prominently depicted in the play. Hmm, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. Oh, I mean, you know, you're talking to about the daughter that comes oh, back and finds yeah. out in that era and then the memories of the past. So we're talking 1857, we're talking the pioneer era where the daughter is confronting the family and the family is dealing with the secret. And then you have Juanita in the future. So to me, it meant it was sort of three different eras that kind of came together in one place. That's kind of how I saw it. Okay. Now I understand. So yeah. the other story um, is about this fictional woman, Miranda, um, who was a survivor of Mountain Meadows, but was not turned over to the federal soldiers who came looking for, there were, there were 
um, at least 17 children that survived the massacre. They were all younger than six. And after two and, and after the massacre, they were sort of farmed out to local LDS families. And, but then two years later, um, when news of this sort of finally circulated east and up, uh, the army was sent to collect the surviving children to take them back to Arkansas, which is where the um, wagon train was from, and turn them over to their relatives. Even at that time, there was some ambiguity about how many children were involved. Was it 17 or 18? But we know for a fact that 17 children were collected and sent back to Arkansas. So Miranda is the 18th child, but she does, she grows up not knowing that. Um, and it's not until she's an adult that um, what turns out to be her adoptive mother on the adoptive mother's deathbed tells Miranda that she is not her real daughter, that um, she's an adopted daughter. And that sets Miranda on the path of trying to find out about her real parents. Um, and she pretty quickly figures out that they were killed at Mountain Meadows. Um, and eventually um, she finds out that the man that she thinks is her father um, was involved in the Mountain Meadows massacre. And so it builds to the climax of her confrontation with him during which she finds out that her mother had been the third wife of this man. Um, she had decided to leave the marriage. She was pregnant when she left the marriage. She went with another man. Um, they were both labeled backouts because they were leaving the church and they were leaving Utah and they hooked up with the wagon train. And it, again, there are, it's never been established um, but there were rumors that there were backouts, Mormons who were leaving the church, who joined up with this wagon train. Um, and she discovers that her man she thought was her father killed the man that her mother had left with. Um, and then other people unknown had killed her mother. And she also discovers that her father's not sure if he is or is not the father. In other words, her, her true father is ambiguous. Did her mother have an affair before she left her husband? Or was she pregnant when she left her husband? Um, and that's never resolved. That, that, that's always a question. Um, during that confrontation, Samuel, the man who she has thought was her father, the man who killed um, the, the, the new partner of her mother who was present when her mother was killed, although he swears he didn't kill her, um, he has to deal with all of his memories of that killing and his guilt about it um, as well. So those are the... Yeah, no, it was a brilliant way to show just the generational um, effect that this had, I thought, just absolutely brilliant. Don't you think, Landon? Yeah, we, we saw it in a black box uh, mm -hmm. theater, uh, which really made it, uh, you had kind of that dark feeling that a black box can bring. And so it, it, I think it was really effective rather than on a big stage to see it in that black box and just get the feel for the 
the emotion and the effect that uh, that they were having. Uh, oh, it was emotional. I yeah. mean, you could have heard a pin drop the entire time. It was not like a regular play where you're kind of watching past the milk duds. We were riveted to that stage and to the story that was unfolding in front of us. It was it was just wonderful. And so I guess the most exciting part that we can talk about now is we thought, oh, well, that's done. We saw it. We can talk about it and tell people about it. But dang it, they're not going to be able to see it again. But that's wrong. <laughs> There's I think we another went on chance. Did we're we go on so closing excited. night? I, I think we went on closing night. So We got, did because yeah. I would have gone again, yes. I, except for that we, we went on closing afternoon. I think it was a matinee. Yeah. And that's where we first met Deborah, too, is because she, you were at that event. So our group got to meet you, and that was really exciting. But why don't you tell us, Deborah, about where this is now going to be performed and in a way that everybody who wants to can access it. We're just absolutely thrilled. Yes. Um, so uh, Entrada Institute is um, uh, a small nonprofit located in Torrey, Utah, and its mission as a nonprofit is to celebrate and preserve the natural, cultural, historical, artistic life of the Colorado Plateau. Um, and in, in fact, um, in, I think it was 2020, an earlier draft of this play was read um, at Entrada Institute um, uh, on their outdoor stage. Um, anyway, uh, from the point in time when it was clear that there was gonna be a production of this play, um, Entrada Institute had been talking to me about can we somehow bring Mount Meadows back um, now that it's it's uh, you know in a, in, a, in a finalized form? Can we bring it back? And um, if you've ever been to Torrey, you know there are no uh, the high school auditorium is the only stage <laughs> in the county, you know, and um, it's it 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 just it wasn't going to work that this that we could bring. Uh, a full production of this play down there. But um, I talked with the director and the cast and they were more than willing to come down and do a reader's theater version of it. So um, on Saturday, July 15th, Entrada Institute is going to host um, a reader's theater reading of the play using the exact same cast that performed the play at Pygmalion Theater in Salt Lake City, which is pretty remarkable or pretty amazing. Um, for the people who are in attendance there, you know, you, you'll be in the same space with the cast who will be reading. We're hoping that it can be on the outdoor stage because that will allow more people uh, to be there. Um, but they're also going to live stream it on Facebook, which means that anybody can watch it. Yeah, we were thrilled to hear that, of course. And you can get tickets. It is free. Um, you're encouraged to donate, of course, and who wouldn't to the wonderful Entrada Institute. So we simply um, went online, found the Entrada Institute. We'll put links in the show notes. And we just um, basically reserved our tickets. So it sounds like more and more people probably are, the word's spreading and are going to go. So if you guys, if anybody would like to actually go to Tori, make sure that you go onto that website and reserve those 
spaces and hopefully it will be outdoors. That would be very impactful. I think if the weather's good, I can see how that would be amazing. And otherwise you can go onto Facebook and look up the um, Entrada Institute. Um, I do not have links yet because they haven't put them out specifically to this event, but you can kind of prep for it by finding the Entrada Institute online. And then as soon as I get those links, I'll be putting them out on Mormonish and on my Facebook page, just everywhere that I can put them to try to get everyone to be able to access it. And you'll be able to enjoy this incredible Reader's Theater. And I have to say, when I first heard it was a Reader's Theater, I thought, oh, I wonder who they'll get to do it. And then when I heard it was that original cast, which, don't you agree, Landon, was spectacular. They were just yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was very and well done. I'm, I'm, I'm very well interested done. to see how you're going to do the reading, because if I remember right, some of the characters played multiple roles. Um, and, and so when they're doing a voice reading and you're not seeing the change in costume and stuff, do you see that as a challenge or? Well, the, 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 the director is going to be reading the stage directions, uh, which is how you adapt a, a, a play to a reader's theater format. So she'll, you know, she, for example, um, the same actor plays the relative of Nephi Johnson at his deathbed scene, plays the fiance of Miranda, um, who himself, uh, although but a boy, was at Mountain Meadows, and then also plays um, an officer in the church who won't let uh, Nita, Juanita Brooks look at the documents they have. So he's playing three different roles. But for each one of those scenes that he's in, the stage directions will say, you know, um, um, you know, I'm forgetting. <laughs> it's my own character, and I'm forgetting what <laughs> what name I gave for the very first um, scene. But anyway, Uncle, Uncle, whatever his yes. name, you know, comes in with with Juanita, um, and then later it'll be Miranda comes in with Jeremy, mm -hmm. her fiance. And then it'll be Brother Anderson comes on. So you'll be told, in effect, that he's a different character. So I, don't, I actually don't think it'll be a problem at all. No, you'll be able to visualize, I think, pretty clearly um, from reader theaters that I participated in. That's how it is. So have you read um, any of the, there, there are several different books written about the Mountain Meadows. There's Will Bagley and his Blood of the Prophets. There's Turley's uh, Massacre of Mountain Meadow, I think is what it's called. Now there's a brand new one, Vengeance is Mine, that just came out. Do you keep your finger on the pulse of the mountain meadows or what do you, do you have you read any of these or what, what are your I, thoughts? I do. I, I have, I've read Bagley's book. I've uh, read the, the massacre at Mount Meadows. Um, I recently traveled from Utah to Oregon and I tried to get vengeance is mine before I left, but it hadn't actually hit the bookstores yet. So. Dang it. <laughs> but um, uh, that's on my to-do list of things that I have to order. Oh, um, for sure. And, yeah, we're reading that in our book club right now. And I'm going to have the chance to interview Barbara in a couple of weeks on, I think, two different podcasts. So that'll be yeah. really interesting, too, because that book deals with the aftermath, you know, the trials and who really was responsible or who was the scapegoat. And there are very strong opinions of, about that everywhere. That's what's so amazing to me is the opinions are still so strong, so strong. We released a Mormonish episode um, that dealt with the archaeology of the Mountain Meadows. And the comments, even today, are, you know, that didn't happen. Mormons weren't involved. I mean, people are just 
just adamant about certain points of it. And wow. like you said, it's generational, institutional. Everyone feels it being part of the religion and and either to defend or to say, I want to I want to truthfully look into it. But I'm just astounded at how it resonates. And it does with me personally. I mean, it, it absolutely does. So I have to say, um, as I said, I haven't read Vengeance is Mine yet, but uh, I was very impressed with the massacre at Mount Meadows. I think it's a superb work. Um, I yes, thought sir. it was very even-handed and I thought it was very honest. I know um, some critics of the church uh, have felt that no one has gone far enough because uh, these people believe that uh, Brigham Young was intimately involved in the massacre. Right. Um, and of course that's not what the historical documents show, but. Right, it's nebulous. <laughs> <laughs> No, we read Will Bagley's book in our book club. So we tend to be Bagley purists. And it's really interesting because we read it. About 15 of us went down to the site on the anniversary. And that's where we met uh, Martin Mountain Meadows archaeologist Everett Bassett, who I think is the ex-husband of, of your yeah. friend, um, <laughs> Kim Novak, which is, inter or is that? No, not Kim Novak. That's an actress. Yeah. What's her name? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Kim Novak. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, I mean, we just feel like we've kind of been intimately connected all through here, but when we were at the site, having uh, read Will Bagley's book, and we actually Zoomed our virtual book club meeting for there, we ran into a man who said, oh, no, no, not that book. Come to my car. And he took us over to the back of his car and he opened it up and there were copies of Turley's book. He goes, oh, no, I'm friends with Turley. You know, this is what you need to read here. So everyone has a different. And then Krakauer, Under the Banner of Heaven, which I think relied heavily on Juanita's book. So if oh. everyone wants the reading list, you know, we'll give it to you in the show notes. There's a lot to cover. <laughs> Everybody's book relied heavily on Juanita's book. <laughs> yes. 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 Well, and if you think about it, Turley, as the church historian, had access to those documents that Juanita did not have access to. And Barbara Brown is a co-author of the second one has, has talked about that, how they had access to everything and were able to look through it. And, and I think they did try to be really fair and balanced, you know, and they said, um, from what I understand in my conversations with her, she said, yeah, we looked at Brigham Young and there was a lot of rhetoric, you know, that, that fear mongering rhetoric that he was responsible for, but they could not find direct evidence that he would, you know, so there's a lot of back and forth and maybe we'll never know. We probably never will know definitively if they've gone through all the records, but it's just as interesting today as it was then. And there are new things coming out all the time. So maybe there'll be a part two for you. What do you think? <laughs> well, I, I definitely would like there to be a part two because um, I very strongly feel that I'm not done with Juanita, that um, I would like to tell the fuller story of her life. Um, just, yeah, I'm, I'm such a fan of hers. Um, there, there is a, a very competent biography of her by Levi Peterson, um, but it is a traditional biography. And I would like... Um, to tell a more narrative story, a play about her with her as a central character. So, but I haven't quite figured that one out yet. And and I'm also waiting because there is a biography of her that is supposed to come out, I think this fall, written by, and I'm, you know who she is, but I've forgotten her name, the Sunstone. Oh, by Lindsay Hanson Park. Yes. Yes. 
you're right. Now that you said that, I remember that. You're absolutely right. Oh, that's going to be brilliant. Yes. No, she's incredible. And I love it because it's it's a strong woman's voice from the past. And there were many strong women, but their voices were lost. In this case, Juanita fought so hard and her voice lives on so that people can actually write about her and let us get to know her. So I love that. The biography followed by Another play by Deborah 3D. We're going to book you to be on in what, two years? Maybe that'll, <laughs> you've got it done to talk about your new play, Juanita. I can literally getting goosebumps. I can see it. Can't you land it? <laughs> Absolutely. Nope, that'd be a great one. Oh, I love it. Well, we just thank you so much for coming on and letting us all know about this. We are going to put copious notes in the show notes to make sure that everybody has a reading list of the books that we've mentioned. We'll call it the Summer of Mountain Meadows. Um, it's a topic that there's a lot of value in digging in and finding out more about it. There's there's a lot and it's just as relevant today as it always was. So we'll put all that kind of information in the show notes and I will post things as we get closer. It's July 15th which is a Saturday. It's at, I believe seven o'clock at night. And there will be a link on Facebook with the Entrada Institute where you can virtually sit on your couch with a bowl of popcorn and you can enjoy this. Or if you're an adventurer, you can join us in Torrey. We're going to be down there at Torrey, Utah for the place. So again, we'd like to thank Deborah. We'd like to thank Landon. We'd like to thank all of our viewers and listeners. Please like and subscribe. And if you would like to be notified when new episodes are of Mormonish are coming out, you can hit the notification bell. And we actually did finally figure out um, how to accept donations. We had people ask if there was a way that they could help and contribute to Mormonish. And so we have links in the show notes to a Venmo and PayPal if you'd like to support us that way. We just appreciate all of you and, and love you guys so much. So thank you again from Mormonish. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.